Tonight's reading is from Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Acts 1, 6 through 9. Jesus is taken into heaven. While the apostles were still with Jesus, they asked him, Lord, are you now going to give Israel its own king again? And Jesus said to them, You don't need to know the time of those events that only the Father controls. But the Holy Spirit will come upon you and give you power. Then you will tell everyone about me in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and everywhere in the world. After Jesus had said this, and while they were watching, he was taken up into a cloud. They could not see him. This is the word of the Lord. The Trinity Reformed Presbyterian Church of Centerville began over a dispute of whether or not flowers should be in the sanctuary. Seven more splits happened between 1915 and 1929. By 1931, the latest version of the church was renamed Third Westminster Trinity Covenant Presbyterian Reformed Church of Centerville. The church continued to divide. Eventually, the small town of Centerville witnessed this little denomination break up 48 times. The last split occurred when members disagreed on whether or not checking your email on the Sabbath was a sin. Some folks left the 2nd Street, 1st, 9th Westminster Covenant Reformed Presbyterian Church and renamed their new church the Presbyterian Totally Reformed Covenantal this is a true story. Westminsterian, Sabbatarian, Regulative, Credo Communionist, Amillennial, Presuppositionalist Church of Centerville. And in a newspaper report, a teaching elder in the PTRCWSRCCAPCC was quoted as saying, I think we finally got it right now. Uh, we have a church with 100% doctrinal purity. We're up to six on Sundays. Maybe we'll grow. True story. Now, the remaining six members of that church uh, chose very weighty theological terms to identify themselves. And that tells us that they are concerned about doctrinal purity. They have a, a good intent. They want to remain faithful to Scripture. And so they've identified a long list of beliefs that they feel you should hold in common to share fellowship. The problem, though, is the disunity that has occurred. And that's what we've been wrestling here this winter as a congregation, is how do you remain doctrinally pure while pursuing oneness at the same time? And uh, here is how we've been answering the question. All Souls wants to be a church where Christians who disagree about important questions of biblical interpretation can live together in loving unity. We strive towards this vision by affirming the Nicene Creed while respecting, challenging, and learning from our brothers and sisters who interpret the Bible differently on non-creedal issues. So every church has a line. Every church has a core of beliefs that uh, they ask members to affirm. If you don't have that, you're not a church. And our line is the creed. Our line is the ancient summary of the biblical gospel. We, Creed summarizes the essential truths that uh, you need to believe in order to be saved. And that's uh, 
the core we ask you to affirm. Now, this winter, we've been going through these different beliefs line by line and, and trying to help you understand what it is that you're affirming when you affirm the Nicene Creed. And tonight, we're going to look at the, the phrase, uh, He, speaking of Jesus, of course, ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father. Now, Jesus knew that he would return to the Father after his death. He talked about this more than once. A few days before his death, he told the high priest, Soon you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right side of God All-Powerful and coming with the clouds of heaven. And he tells his disciples on the eve of his death, I came from the Father into the world, but I'm leaving the world and I'm returning to the Father. And after his resurrection, he says to Mary Magdalene, Hey, don't hold on to me. I've not yet gone to the Father. Uh, but tell my disciples that I'm going to the one who is my Father. Well, 40 days after the resurrection, the disciples witness Christ returning to heaven. Jesus gathers the disciples on the Mount of Olives, about a half a mile outside of Jerusalem. He says, look, I don't want you to do anything until I give you the Holy Spirit. And then Luke tells us what he saw next. After Jesus had said this, and while they were watching, he was taken up into a cloud. And then two angels explained to the disciples that he has ascended back into heaven. Now, we don't need to adopt the ancient worldview of a heaven up there and an earth down here to believe in, in this event. Uh, when Sandy and I were in the former Soviet Union, our guide took us to a museum of atheism, and it was housed in a former Orthodox church. Almost all the churches were padlocked and closed at that time, but there were a couple open, and they'd been turned into these museums of atheism. And they had this big dome in the center uh, that used to have a picture of the reigning Christ. And they'd painted over it, first with blue paint, and then they had put stars and the moon and a cosmonaut. And the uh, guide explained to us, as we looked up at the dome where Christ used to be, what had happened. And she said, our, our cosmonauts have gone into heaven, or gone into space, they've not seen God, and uh, we know he doesn't exist now, and uh, we think science reigns. And so they painted their worldview uh, unto the heavens. Well, the eternal truths of the Bible are always expressed in the language and the thought forms of their day. In, in that world, people thought, heaven up here, earth down here, Jesus goes up. Well, in our world, we might use different language today to talk about this. And I'm not sure how well this illustration will sound 100 years from now, but in our culture, we might talk about changing the dimensions of existence. We live in a three-dimensional world, length, width, and depth. But scientists now say there could be as many as ten dimensions. An article in Universe Today, which I'm sure is by all of your beds, uh, says superstring theory, and I'm exhausting my knowledge of it by reading this quote, posits that the universe exists in ten different dimensions. According to superstring theory, the fifth and sixth dimensions are where the notion of possible worlds arise. If we could see on through to the fifth dimension, we would see a world slightly different than our own. In the sixth, we would see a plane of possible worlds. 
In the seventh dimension, you have access to the possible worlds that start with different initial conditions. Now, another writer takes superstring theory and suggests what it might mean for Christians. He says, the idea that our universe may not be the only one, and that there may be other universes operating according to different laws, is now coming into the mainstream of modern physics. So the Christian concept of eternity, which is God outside of space and time, is rendered completely intelligible. It opens up possibilities that would have seemed far-fetched even for science fiction a century ago. So at least some people writing on the new physics are saying that a number of dimensions probably exist beyond the ones that we can see. And so as a Christian, when you read a story like Christ ascending into heaven, perhaps one way that we could think of it is Christ transitioning into a higher eternal dimension. Now, Paul uses another metaphor from the ancient world to describe what happens to Christ when he goes into this dimension of heaven. He, Paul says in Ephesians that Jesus sits down at the right hand of the Father. Now, where, where does that come from? Well, Paul is using language from Psalm 110, which is the psalm quoted the most frequently in the New Testament. The psalm says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right side until I make your enemies into a footstool for you. Have you ever read that one in, in the Psalms, maybe in a devotion or something, and wondered, what is this about? The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right side. Well, that is called an enthronement psalm. Originally, it was a psalm used when, when David took the, the throne, and the psalmist was, was speaking for God, and God was saying to David, you're at my right hand now on earth. I'm up here, you're at my right hand. I'm saying to you that you now walk in my authority and power as my king. So it was a psalm applying to the king of Israel. Well, Jesus and Paul and the other New Testament writers apply it to the Messiah. And essentially what Jesus is, is, is saying and what Paul is saying when they do that is that now Jesus sits on the eternal throne, the place of authority and power, next to the Father. So it's a metaphor or an image of, of honor, uh, of power, of, of might. That's where our Lord returned to. Now, tonight I, I want to just spend a little bit of time thinking about what goes on in the 10th dimension? Um, what is Jesus doing now? And this goes without saying, but I'll say it again. This is one of the fundamental distinctives between Christianity and other religions. Is that we believe that the God that we follow, the man that we follow, is still alive. Is still active. And that should shape everything about how we live our Christian life. And the New Testament identifies three different ministries that our Lord is actively pursuing while he is in the right hand of the Father. And, and the first one is that he promises to guide us. Let's think about that a little bit. There was a time when Jesus went to a festival in Jerusalem, and he stands up and and it says he shouts, If you're thirsty, come to me and drink. Have faith in me and you'll have life-giving water flowing from deep inside you. 
So John writes that down. And when John writes it down, however many years later, he, he adds a comment so that we understand. He says, Jesus was talking about the Holy Spirit, who would be given to everyone who had faith in him. The Spirit had not yet been given to anyone since Jesus had not yet been given in his full glory. So you see what he's saying? Jesus says, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. John, looking back, says, and that won't happen until Christ is exalted. Now, the last night of his life, Jesus promises four times to give the Holy Spirit to the disciples so that they could carry out his work in the world. So remember, at this point, at the cross, the disciples don't have the same access of spiritual power that you do tonight. And these are verses I've underlined in my Bible many times because I often forget them. That, that somehow it's actually better. I often think, geez, I wish I would have lived with Christ. I wish I got to walk with Christ. I'd be a much better Christian if I could have been with Christ. And the Bible actually says, no, probably not. You're better off now that he's gone because he gave you the Holy Spirit. That's a, a wild idea. Here's a couple of the things he says at dinner on the last night. He says, I'll ask the Father to send you the Spirit who help you and always be with you and he'll show you what is true. He says, but the Holy Spirit will come and help you because the Father will send the Spirit to take my place. The Spirit will teach you everything and will remind you of what I said when I was with you. I will send you the Spirit who comes from the Father and shows what is true. The Spirit will help you and tell you about me. This is why I'm going away. The Holy Spirit cannot help you until I leave. But after I'm gone, I'll send the Spirit to you. And then 40 days later, just before he leaves, he says, Don't go until I send the Spirit to you. Then on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit's poured out. Peter receives the Spirit, gets up before the crowds, and he says, Jesus was taken up to sit at the right side of God, and he's given the Holy Spirit. So the first ministry that, that, that Christ carries out in heaven is he guides his people by the Holy Spirit. He's actively involved both in this church, in the bigger church, in the little churches of your families and houses and friendships, He's actively involved guiding his people by the Holy Spirit. That's very, very important to understand. And that means that our postures as Christians need, need to be one of constantly seeking the Lord's guidance and will in every situation. That's why prayer is so important for a Christian. That's why Fasting is so important for Christians. That's why we go through Lent. That's why forgiving one another is so important because if there's bitterness in my heart towards you, uh, it clogs my capacity to hear the Holy Spirit. This is really one of the, 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 the cores of all the cores is that Jesus wants to guide us and you by His Spirit. And so a question you might think of tonight is, is that actually happening in my life to any degree? 
Now, I know, I don't want to get all legalistic about this. I shared with somebody this week that I'd had a day where I'd had a bunch of appointments. And at the end of the day, I, I, I just I said to my friend, I didn't sense the Spirit's guidance at all today. And they reminded me that sometimes you can't just rely on your feelings, and that's important. But as a general rule, is your posture, when you go out to dinner tonight, and you sit down with a friend, or you go to pray by your child's bed tonight, or you, you, you look at your phone and you see an email that's disturbing and you, you're thinking about it right now and you know you're going to have to follow up on it tomorrow morning. Is your posture to react first and pray later? Or is the posture of your heart, whatever it looks like for your spirituality, this constant, God, Jesus, guide me here. Help me discern what it is you want to do with my daughter, with my job opportunity, with this class I'm taking. That's the first ministry of Jesus in heaven. He's guiding us by his Holy Spirit. And I do ask as we, uh, if, you, if you could, that you'd pray for your shepherding team. We meet the, the first Monday night of the month. We're going on a little retreat here in a couple of weeks. Pray that we would be guided by the Holy Spirit. That we would discern the will of the Lord for the things that we're talking about. Well, the second ministry uh, Christ practices in heaven is he rules. Paul says that from his position at the right hand of the Father, Christ rules over all forces, authorities, powers, and rulers. He rules over all beings in this world. He'll rule in the future world as well. Now, the Soviet painters that took blue paint and put it all over uh, the picture of Jesus on the top of the Orthodox Church probably painted over an icon that's... uh, in most Orthodox churches, called Christ Pantocrator. And literally in the Greek, that means he rules everything. And when you think about you know, where the Soviets were in the middle of the 20th century and what they, were, what they were doing, it made all the sense in the world for those painters to paint over this idea of the ruling Christ and replace him with uh, science and Soviet astronauts. Because from their perspective, Christ's authority had been just a manipulative ploy that the princes used to oppress people for hundreds of years. And now science had liberated them from all that. Now a lot of modern people today have a very hard time with this idea of Christ ruling. Sometimes I think we say these things to each other so much we we forget how radical they are or how counterintuitive they are. But, but this is something that we're affirming when we say we believe in the creed. When, when you say Christ ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of the Father, you are saying that you believe that Jesus Christ rules the world. Now, how could that be? Well, Christians have struggled with that for 2,000 years, um, what, what that looks like. But two themes come up in Scripture that I think everybody agrees on, and and this is the first one. Jesus' reign on earth has begun, but is not yet complete. Jesus 
has established a victory, but the victory is not yet full. Paul talks about that all the time. He'll talk about Christ's victory, and then he'll say, as in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ will rule until he puts all enemies under his power. So, how do you put this together? How can Paul say Christ is victor, Christ is triumphed, and Christ will rule until he puts the enemies under his feet? There's this sense in which he's already ruling, but not yet ruling. And I find this is a major reason why people don't become Christians. Is they look at Christians declaring that Christ rules over all, that God is sovereign, that somehow he's in charge of things, and, and they look out at the world and it's broken and chaotic and dangerous, and it doesn't look like anybody's directing the play at all. How do you put that together? It's hard. And I don't have all the answers. It's a mystery. But it's not entirely a mystery. It's part of the way you think about ruling. Let me give an illustration, and this is not a great illustration, because any illustration about God falls short when you use people. But let me try it. Let's suppose you're a mom at home with four kids. It's raining. It's snowing. You're stuck. You have authority over that home. You love those children. There's a sense in which you rule over your home. And there's a sense at which on most days, your love and your wisdom and your power is going to shepherd that home towards a good end and the children are going to move towards the things that they are supposed to move towards. But if your home is anything like the way our home was, there are many times during that rainy day when it does not look like you are in control, Mom. <laughs> it looks like the inmates are running the asylum. It looks like the, the children have taken over. And I know that's an imperfect illustration, because Christ is, is not us. But I do think it's an illustration of how the Bible thinks about ruling. It doesn't mean absolutely controlling every situation and circumstance like puppets. What it means is Christ is in authority, but we have freedom to disobey his authority. But that somehow, mysteriously, through love, through power, over time, Christ moves the world towards his desired goal. Jimmy Jones is the sheriff of Knox County. He has the authority to rule Knox County. He has the authority to enforce every Law. Yet every morning, just under a thousand inmates wake up in the Knox County Jail. Does that mean that Jimmy Jones is not in charge? No, it means there's freedom and people are free to break his rules. So perhaps we could think about Christ's rule in some way like that. As moving history towards a goal, even though there is freedom at work, that resists that goal. Now, the second thing that we see a lot in Scripture is, is probably more important. Regardless of how you and I understand how Christ rules in life, it, there's a big name for this, it's called theodicy. It's the whole problem of how can a good God allow evil. And, and frankly, I think some people spend a lot of energy on intellectual problems because they don't want to deal with the simple stuff. 
And the simple stuff is, okay, you may not exactly understand how Jesus Christ rules through the Holocaust and the Rwanda genocide and all the other crazy things that are going on in the world today. You may not understand this, but you can understand this. He's your ruler. What are you doing with that? Every Christian has to come to terms with Christ's present reign over his own life. I'd like to read you a quote from that wonderful book on the creed, if if that got up there. Thank you. The creed statements about the resurrection and exaltation of Jesus express the truth about Jesus now. They are the premise for the church's worship and practice. If these statements are false, everything that the church does in the name of Jesus is an empty shell. For Jesus can only refer to a dead man of the distant past and not a powerful Lord of the present whose presence defines our present. When the church gathers in the name of Jesus, it gathers in the name of nothing if Jesus is not Lord. When the church prays and heals and prophecies in the name of Jesus, it engages in self-deception and delusion if Jesus does not now act in the world with the very power of the Creator. But if the creed speaks the truth, then the question we put to Jesus is not nearly so important as the question Jesus puts to us. If the creed speaks the truth, that Jesus now lives at the right hand of the Father, then learning Jesus is not a matter of scholarly enterprise and casual reading about a teacher of the past but a matter of obedience to the one who presses upon us at every moment, encounters us in the sacraments and saints and strangers, and calls us to account. See, when when you say, I affirm Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, you are making the most radical statement a human being can make. You are saying there's a bigger story and I'm not the author. You are saying I submit my life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and whatever His will is I want to follow it. We're going to come back to that in the last part of this series because sometimes you know when we talk about consensual orthodoxy, this idea that I've been introducing for all these weeks, sometimes I think I've given the misimpression that, hey, hold on to the core, and it doesn't really matter what you believe in all that other stuff. It's not important. It's a bunch of words on a, on a church name. That is not at all what I believe. I believe it's all important. I believe every word of Scripture is important. And what I yearn for in our congregation is that we will be a people who live under the authority of Scripture, who wrestle with Scripture, who dig into Scripture, who hold on to Scripture. What consensual orthodoxy means is these are the handful of beliefs that are essential for the salvation of your soul. You've got to hold on to that together. Everything else we're going to work on in the Word. So what is Christ doing in heaven? 
He's ruling. Well, the last ministry of our Lord uh, in heaven is He's praying. The book of Hebrews devotes several chapters to this. Let me just quote a couple verses. After the Son had washed away our sins, He sat down at the right side of the glorious God in heaven. We now have a great high priest who's gone into heaven, and He is Jesus, the Son of God. He's our great high priest interceding for us. He has the Father's ear. Sitting at God's right hand, Jesus is able to plead our case for us. There have been a lot of other priests, and all of them have died, but Jesus will never die And so he will be a priest forever. He is forever able to save the people he leads to God. He always lives to speak to God for them. Jesus is the high priest we need. That idea that the second member of the Trinity is praying for us is mind-blowing to me. It's hard to even wrap your minds around it. And, and, and as I thought about this idea from superstring theory, maybe it's because we're third-dimensional people trying to talk about ten-dimensional ideas. Or maybe I read something studying this week about uh, a book where all the characters lived in two dimensions. They all lived, they were flat. They all lived on a piece of paper. And the author posed the question, what happens when a three-dimensional object crashes into a two-dimensional world? How do the flatlanders, the two-dimensional people, describe the three-dimensional object? They can't see its fullness. And so what we're talking about here, when we're talking about the intercession of Christ in heaven, is we're like flatlanders, two-dimensional people trying to describe a three-dimensional God. But I think we can maybe come up with a couple of ideas We all know what it means to have someone pray for you. I was struggling with something this week, texted a friend. I said, hey, would you pray for me on this? A few minutes later, text back. Yeah, praying for you right now. Tells me he loves me. And it tells me that somehow, mysteriously, the grace of God, the power of God, the love of God is engaged on my behalf. So the fact that Jesus is praying for us tells us that he's for us, that he loves us, that he's engaging the Father on our behalf. We're talking ten-dimensional stuff here. I don't know how all that works. But there might be something more here uh, if we just probe this mystery a little further. Orthodox Christians believe that Christians who've led a particularly holy life and have drawn close to God enjoy special favor in their prayers. Um, In the Orthodox tradition, uh, these magnificent intercessors are often people that have spent a lifetime fasting and and praying. Usually they're monks. An Orthodox friend of mine asks a particular monk to pray for her regularly because she believes in the special efficacy of his prayers. Now, non-Orthodox Christians uh, may have a little trouble with this idea. We'd want to avoid legalism in prayer. We don't want the idea that God only answers us when we've done certain things. We understand that. But I think we all would be open to the idea that a person 
who is walking very closely with God might be better able to discern the Father's will in prayer than someone who is eating spiritual Cheetos all day. I mean, there are people that we want to pray for us because they seem to have a special nearness to the Father. Well, if the effectiveness of prayer has anything to do with the life of the one praying, then Christ's prayers must be very effective indeed. He knows the Father's heart. He knows our heart. He knows the Father's will. He knows what resources we need to obey it. What is Jesus doing in heaven tonight? He's trying to guide us by his spirit, I guess, right now, somehow. Since that at all? He's ruling. And he's praying. Now, before we close, just one other thought I wanted to, to point out. This is a whole other sermon, and we're not really going to have time to go into it tonight. But my focus tonight has been on Christ's ministry as the, the seated Lord. But there's a wonderful verse in Ephesians 2, verse 6. It says, We are also seated with Christ in the heavenly places. I think this is one of the most important parts of our identity in Christ. That not only has Christ been raised to the dead, raised from the dead, seated at the right hand of the Father, enjoying special intimacy and authority and power, you've been raised with Him? And that means that now you're not just a third-dimensional person, you're a tenth-dimensional person, too? I love Colossians 3, verse 1. It says, our lives are hid with Christ in God. And, and, and someone pointed out to me earlier today... What this means is, remember back in the first act of the story about how God gave Adam and Eve dominion and authority and made him in his image and he made him as vice regents to carry out his work on the earth and that was all wiped out due to sin? This restores that. This restores the, the image of God in us. This, this takes us back to that original place of, of being in union with the Father and able to carry out his purposes. So one of the things I want you to leave with here tonight is not just that Christ is ministering by guiding and ruling and praying, but that you are somehow with him in that place of authority and power. And that should affect the way a mother leads her home on a snowy day, the way a student responds when the professor is antagonistic, all the things that we face in life should somehow come back to this 10th dimension, 3 dimension mix that we experience. I told you a few weeks ago I was, I was listening to um, K-Love for Lent because I gave up media and sports talk. And I've been struggling, I confess. I know nothing about March Madness. And I confess, I quit listening to Caleb. Um, 
I don't need to go into that. It's a very personal thing. Um, but I wasn't getting where I wanted to get, and so I started to listen to novels. And uh, I asked a friend who's an English professor for a couple of novels, and lo and behold, she gave me two novels that are written by about two guys in their 60s dealing with death. So I've been enjoying those. Um, <laughs> but, but honestly, I see what the Lord is doing in a way because as I'm, as I'm walking with, uh, uh, with, these, with these two men as they cope with their own mortality, they're doing it all in the third dimension. They have no union with someone who's bigger and more powerful and more loving and praying for them, and they have no hope whatsoever. So remember this week, you're not alone. You're not alone. You're not your failures. You are raised with Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Thank you.